Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. The Theology in the Raw Exiles in Babylon Conference is just a few days away. We have a few spots left to attend live here in Boise. You can go to theologyinthera.com and register there, or uh, you can uh, stream it virtually. That's unlimited, so there's no cap on that. And a lot of people have asked, if I can't uh, attend live, can I still sign up for the virtual event and get access to it, you know, the next day or the next few days? And the answer is yes, you will have seven days to watch the conference if you sign up for the virtual option. We have also added, in case you haven't heard, uh, Francis Chan to the lineup, and um, I'm super excited about that. He's going to be speaking the first evening on Thursday night, so if you're a Francis Chan fan and want to get an update on what's going on in his life, then that's, I guess, more motivation to check out the conference. Um, also, uh, yeah, I just mentioned theologyinthera.com. We have a new website. Uh, we've been working on this for a few months, actually. And we launched it a few weeks ago. There is an official Theology in the Raw website with tons of curated resources, blogs, podcast episodes that have been organized under various topics. So it just makes it a little more user-friendly if you want to go and see all the things that we have done on various topics. So theologyinthera.com, check it out. All right, my guest today is Dr. Carl Ellis, who is pretty much, I mean a legend in, in many ways. He's going to not like the fact that I called him a legend, but this dude's been around the block in so many different ways. He uh, has a master's degree from Westminster Theological Seminary, a, a DPhil, a doctorate in philosophy from Oxford University. Um, he's the author of the book Free at Last. He has also studied under Francis Schaeffer at Labrie. I mean, this, this guy just has an amazing track record. And I've never talked with Dr. Ellis before, so I just knew him from a distance. Oh my word. Uh, I want him to adopt me. Like he, <laughs> this guy, I, I, yeah, I was, I was not, not surprised, but just like, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. This guy's a legend from a distance, but we had, I had the most enjoyable conversation with him. I love his perspective. He's so wise, so nuanced. So yeah, like he, as he said, like people accuse me of being too conservative and being too liberal, being Marxist, being this, that. And he's like, man, I'm just, I'm a Jesus follower trying to think through complex issues. And that's what he helps us do in this podcast. So please welcome to the show. Hopefully, hopefully not the last time. Hopefully this is the beginning of many other episodes to come. So please welcome to the show, the one and only Dr. Carl Ellis. All right. Hey, friends. I'm here with uh, Dr. Carl Ellis. It's a great honor to talk to you. Um, gosh, I mean, your your reputation and credentials precede you. A doctorate from Oxford University. Um, you, you, you know, one of the things that stuck out in your bio was that you were part of um, a ministry started by Tom Skinner. Is that is that correct? You, yes. I don't know if people listening will know that name. They should. Uh, I didn't until 15 years ago. A, a, a colleague of mine... Um, had this like really popular sermon that he gave. This was must have been back in the seventies or something. He had like an old DVD or something, and that that I mean I I, I listened to this yeah fifteen years ago and it just it, it blew my mind. <laughs> As a white dude, just hearing Tom Skinner talk about what it is, how it is being black in the American evangelical church, and just it, it was it was. 
it was revolutionary to me, even though it's probably basic to a lot of people. But um, anyway, so I was, I was, I, I've been a fan ever since. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm talking too much, Carl. You, you have written a book, Free at Last. The first edition was in 1983, and it's gone through a few revisions. Can you just give us? Maybe let's just use that as a launching point. Tell us what that book okay. is all about, and I'm sure that will give us a lot of talking points. The whole premise of the book is that God works through history and culture. Uh, okay, the Bible tells me that. So what I did, I took that premise, that biblical premise, and I applied it uh, to giving a theological analysis of the African-American experience, a case study on how God works through history and culture. That's about the best way I can put it. Okay. So, so if you read the book, you get some ideas you get some concepts that even you can go and, and apply it to a whole other uh, cultural historical situation and, and come up with some very interesting things. Okay, yeah. I, I, I just recently listened to an interview um, you had. Oh, who, who was it with? Um, no, it wasn't Anthony Bradley. It was one where they, they called you Anthony Bradley, <laughs> mistakenly. <laughs> oh, it was with uh, Walt, Walter Strickland, I think. And, and um, yeah, yeah, we all, we all look a <laughs> yeah, your comeback on that—that that was so hilarious. Took a few minutes to recover. Um, you used the phrase, yeah, 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 which I've been trying to have Walter on. So if he, if he, if, he, um, uh, if, if he's listening, uh, Walter, I, I, such a few emails, man. I want to have you on the show. Um, you used the phrase "400 years of collective trauma." Um, that's yeah. something that many, not all, but many white American evangelical Christians, I think don't, haven't really thought about maybe as, as much as they should. Can you unpack that concept and why that's important to understand? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's the case with any group of people who are in a subdominant status in their society. Okay. This is not just, this is not unique to African-Americans. Anybody, you know, you got any society has a dominant group and a subdominant group, okay? And uh, so the system of that society, however you want to define that system, uh, like the system has different components, like the legal system, the medical system, the educational system, the whatever, governmental system, whatever. And all those systems put together, I call the system, okay? Okay. The system in any society gives its absolute best to the dominant group. And it does not work as well for the subdominant group. As a matter of fact, it might even work against the subdominant group. Hmm. So in our whole experience in this country, <clears throat> in, in this country, we have been in the subdominant group. We've been, you know, some people call call them minorities, but actually you could be subdominant and be the majority, you know, like, like for example, South Africa, uh, you know, the, the, the majority, but they were subdominant. So, uh, so in this country, this is all, you know, this is all we've known. Um, and sometimes, like I said, sometimes the system either doesn't work as well for you or sometimes it actually works against you. And when you accumulate all that working against you, then that's the 400 years of trauma that I talk about. 
not all not all of it has been trauma. Some of it has just been difficulty. Okay. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> yeah, it, but it's the same thing with any with any subdominant group. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the things that I teach today is that if you follow Jesus seriously, then you are a distinct cultural minority. You are a subdominant group, and you should expect the system not to work for you or even work against you. Okay. Uh, it, is, it is fatal for a Christian in any society in this world today to think of themselves as being a part of the establishment. This is not our, I mean, the Bible has a very simple way of saying that. It says, consider yourself sojourners and, and pilgrims in this, in this land or being in the world, but not of it. <clears throat> so those are the kind of things okay. that we have to, we have to think about. So we, we, we learn a lot of wisdom. We learn a lot of wisdom from the African-American experience. And we also learn a lot of wisdom from the experience of others in other parts of the world at other times mm-hmm. in a position. So yeah. Free at Last is, is, uh, was a, a sample of all of that. Yeah, yeah. Man, I've got several questions. When you were saying dominant group and subdominant group, is that at all? Because I could hear some people saying, well, I don't know, that sounds kind of Marxist, you know, the oppressor and the oppressed. And I've never read Karl Marx, so I don't want to claim that that's even what he taught. But is is that is there overlap with that kind of well, idea or is it different? Or Yes. It, it, it Look, the Bible itself talks about the, 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 <laughs> the, the oppressed and, you know, and all that. So. I mean, the Bible beat Marx by thousands of years. So, <laughs> you know, you know, if if I got who needs Marx, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Marx is a is a, yeah. is like going back to high school or something for me. You know, right. so uh, <clears throat> no, 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 I'm I'm in no way connected with Mar- the the Marx. But the the problem with Marx is is that the whole for Marxism to work, there's got to be this conflict. There's got to be this struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in reality, it doesn't have to be a conflict. It, it can be a way we can be working things out, and et cetera. Um, uh, like what the church did in the early in the early days was remarkable. Yeah, uh, you had people coming into the church from the dominant group. You had some coming in from the subdominant group, Jews and Gentiles, for example. And uh, there were difficulties, yes, but but they were able to work it out. Yeah. Uh, in Christ, you yeah, know. yeah. The problem is today is that the Christ of American Christianity is not the Christ of the Bible. In many cases, the Christ of American Christianity is an idol. Mm-hmm. In too many cases, let me put it that way. And so we haven't we haven't really we have to rediscover who Christ is. We have to rediscover what the kingdom of God is. Mm-hmm. And we don't operate <clears throat> on a uh, on a, a on a level of the kingdom of God like we should. Hmm. And so when we don't do that, we trivialize the kingdom. I mean the way the way the kingdom is preached in, in much part in much of American Christianity, to me, is boring. You know? Uh, I, you know, of course, Marx looks a lot more radical to me than that. Hmm. But when I see what the Bible has to say, the Bible is far more radical than Marx could ever be. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That way. Well that's yeah. when I ref- when I reflect on kind of the, the the wedding between the the moral majority and the kind of right-wing Christianity in the 80s. And there was just a lot of, um, for lack of better terms, power moves, you know, want to yeah. dominate culture and, and, and impose, and I, I hope I'm not caricaturing it, but like impose more Christian values 
on society. It just, it felt like, it felt like you're, you're not, like the kingdom of God is designed to be, in the, to use your terms, the sub dominant. <laughs> the right. It's designed to be, it's not designed to be the power of movement to overcome culture. It's designed to be, we are the, we are the oppressed. We are the, the minority. We are the ones who are the underdogs, right? I mean, yeah, we are, we are subversive. Yeah. We are subversive. We are, uh, the Navy seals <laughs> of coming world order, namely the kingdom of God. So this is not, our, you know, Jesus said it best. He said, my, my kingdom is not of this right. world system. Right. Uh, and so um, the establishment is governed by the princip- principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. Mm-hmm. And so I am not going to be, uh, I'm not going to assimilate into the establishment. Now, I might be placed in the establishment mm-hmm. as a witness. I think of a guy like Daniel. I mean, mm-hmm. Daniel was well placed in the Babylonian establishment and he he made a lot he made a lot of changes he had a great influence not only in Babylon but in the whole wide world but, but so he was fully functional in the Babylonian situation but he never assimilated hmm. like like those other nobles that came over with him you know what i'm hmm. saying yeah uh, <clears throat> and so what's happened to american christianity is that see this it's one thing to engage culture. God calls us to engage the culture. I mean, that's part of the Great Commission. You make disciples of nations, and part of that is engaging the culture. So engaging the culture means that you affirm it where it's right. <clears throat> because by God's common grace, people do do right things, right? Uh, you affirm it where it's right, and you critique it where it's wrong. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you can identify with the culture, but you don't have to conform to everything in the culture because some things in the culture are right and some things are, are, are wrong. And uh, But what happens too often is that we fall into cultural captivity. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole different thing. When you fall into cultural captivity, you participate in everything in the culture, including the cultural sin. Mm. And after a while, you lose the ability to discern cultural sin when you see it. Mm. That's... That's about the only way I can explain how much of the church went along with slavery and Jim Crow mm. and the removal of the First Nations and the hostility towards immigrants. Yeah. And if you look at the Bible, look at the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, God has a special concern. Although he doesn't play favorites, he has a special concern for what I call the unfortunate quartet. Mm-hmm. That's the, the widow, uh, the fatherless, the immigrant, and the poor. And uh, <clears throat> so, uh, so that's what, that's kind of what happens. You know, we don't treat those folks right. And and what happened in America is that Christianity fell into cultural captivity, and it slipped into what I call Christian nationalism, mm-hmm. where you can't tell the difference between Christian identity and American identity, and that's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Now, what what has happened in recent years is that some Christians who are in the minority or in the subdominant group have seen Christian nationalism and 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 have rightfully so opposed it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the problem is what they've done, <clears throat> instead of going to the scripture and doing some spade work in scripture, they've come out with something very, very, you know, much more radical. They've gone to ideology like critical theory and things like that and Marxism. Mm-hmm. And so they picked that up to try to combat uh, 
the eras of uh, Christian nationalism, but in so doing, they've created another era, era which I call critical Christendom. Okay, uh, and so it's, it's it's a Christendom based on um, critical theory and all and all the rest of that. So they were right to oppose Christian nationalism, uh, but they were wrong to choose an anti-theistic ideology to do so. You know, you you cannot fight and one idol cannot succeed in destroying another idol. The only way to destroy the idol, you got to go to the true and living God. Mm. And, uh, and so we, we haven't been transcendent. That's, that's, that's my critique for today. I, that's, mm. that's what I see happening in, in many cases. I mean, everybody has a right. Whenever somebody imposes an idol on you, you have every right to reject it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but it is foolish to create an anti-idol to mm-hmm. fight the original idol. You know? That's, oh man, you're, that, that's where I've been at, but I, I'm not, this is not my main, I'm a biblical scholar, so I'm not a, I'm not a cultural critic and I'm definitely not a political scientist, but as I look on kind of from a distance, I'm like, you know, especially in the wake of like Trump America, right? Where in, e- either you were full on for Trump or if you weren't for Trump, you were completely against Trump. And part of me was like, right. I don't know, it, Trumpism is obviously a, idolatry. And that's kind of, I don't know, that's low hanging fruit for me. It's like easy to critique Christians who are, see him as kind of some messianic figure or whatever. I'm like, oh, that's so problematic. It's just hard, it's hard to, how, where do I even begin? But then I started to see emerging this like anti-Trumpism that I'm like, wait a minute, the per now is Biden the Messiah? Or like, you just, you're just kind of playing the same thing from the other side. You're defining your existence by what you're, by playing these culture wars. And I'm like, let's just remove ourselves from this way of thinking. I don't know. That is not, you know, those, those things are not worthy of a follower of Christ. Mm. <clears throat> Somebody, uh, sometimes, you know, I, I get all kinds of critique. Uh, I get all kinds of criticism in, in, in cyberspace. <laughs> Some people accuse me of being a radical Marxist, okay? And other people accuse me of being an Uncle Tom. I mean, well, you know, what the heck? <laughs> so I, I get it on both sides. Yeah. And, uh, and I say, I say, well, first of all, and then some people think that I'm conservative, and other people think I'm liberal. <laughs> and uh, I just, I just make it very clear. I do, I am not a conservative by any stretch, although I, I, I I'm not a liberal either by the same token, because conservatism or liberalism is not a worthy enough title huh. to pin on me who's a follower of Christ. So. Yes, yes, I have agreements with conservatives on a lot of uh, in a lot of places, but not enough to call myself one. And yes, I do have an agree- agreements with liberals in many cases, but not enough to call myself one. The conservative versus the liberal is not the thing that really troubles me. What troubles me is the far uh, the far left and the far right. Mm-hmm. So, from my point of view, when I look at what's happening in society. It's not an issue of left versus right. It's an issue of means versus extremes. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's. The, uh, I mean, you take Trump. I mean, you know. Uh, <clears throat> no, I, I was no great fan of Trump, but I sure prayed for him when he was in office. Mm. And also, I, I didn't make the same mistake that a lot of my uh, my African American friends made, who said that anybody who voted for Trump was a racist. Well, that's just ridiculous. Uh, that's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, how do I explain that? If that's the case, then how do I explain 
that 20 to 30 percent of people who voted for Trump in, in, in 2016 voted for Obama twice. Now, how do now how, how you explain that? Huh. Really? That's a, that's uh, 20 to 30 percent. That's that's not a small number. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and yeah. the thing is, when OK, Trump against Hillary. So if Trump's not the answer, then then, then what's the alternative? Is it Hillary? <laughs> You know, she's, um, she's just a female but, version know, of Trump. Know, we had a, <laughs> it, well, what we had a choice between was uh, uh, a bully on one hand yeah. and a shapeshifter on the other. <laughs> well, I can say this. If I had to deal with both of them, I'd much rather deal with the bully because I know where he's coming from. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but a shapeshifter, you don't know what the heck you got. You know? <laughs> so uh, so I, I I know a number of people who voted for Trump, and it wasn't about racism. You know what I'm right, saying? Yeah. I'm not, you know. And uh, yeah, Trump, look, Trump is a, is an opportunist. <clears throat> he saw something going on. He saw uh, uh, he saw an opportunity, and he pounced on it. Uh, there was some dynamics going on. There was this this. Uh, well, I'll just put it this way. Remember Jesse Ventura, governor yeah. of Minnesota, a number of years ago, pro wrestler, yeah. The other day after the election, Trump flew out to talk to him. He said, how did you do this? Really? <laughs> Jesse explained it to him. Evidently. So I got to give it to Trump. He was shrewd. You know? <clears throat> but, uh, but then on the other hand, you know, uh, every time I pull up to the pump to fill up with gas, I, I must admit, I kind of. Uh, lament the, the, the I, I remember the days when we had Trump when I was paying a dollar twenty nine twenty nine for our gas. Because <laughs> 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 we look, I got a fuel efficient car. I got an Acura, right? It's an oh, it's an O four Acura TSX. And the other day, just a couple of days ago, uh, I filled up my tank. Uh, my, my tank holds fifteen gallons. I only got twelve and a half gallons, and it cost me fifty dollars. I couldn't believe it. Wow. Now I know people on the West Coast. I mean, that's nothing compared to what, yeah. what people on the West Coast do. I gave but anyway, a, yeah. yeah, that's. I gave a buddy, or my buddy of mine, gave me a ride to LAX from. It was from the Valley, so it was a pretty long way. And I said, "Hey, I'll, to, to this is just a few days ago." And I said, "Hey, I'll, you know, I'll fill your tank up." Well, he gets there on E. I fill his tank up. It was ninety seven dollars, and his, he had a mid sized car. It wasn't even that. I'm like, wow. All right, well, here we go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's crazy. Yeah. Um, here's a, so I want to go back to the race conversation, and here's a. I would love to get your perspective, and this is like I, I'm I'm genuine. I have a genuine curiosity here. This is not loaded at all. I, I'm really I get different answers to this question, and each one I'm kind of like trying to figure things out since the civil rights movement. Have things gotten better or worse for the African-American community? And the two perspectives I often hear is like, look, they've gotten so much better to the point to where we have a democratically elected black president. Like, how goodness, from, you know, segregation laws, Jim Crow to a black president, democratically elected. That's, that's one perspective. Another perspective on the other extreme might be like, it's actually gotten worse because what was more explicit back then is now just buried into the system to where now it's we have systemic racism issues that are hard to even identify yet are very much in existence where where would you navigate that that perspective back in the old days of jim crow we also we we, we had we had we had uh 
deliberate racism and we also had systemic racism at the same time. Okay. Today, we've gotten rid of most of del deliberate racism, but there are still some vestiges of systemic racism left. It's not nearly as bad as it used to be, okay? Um, like, you know, my, my dad was an original Tuskegee Airman, okay? And uh, and when he came back from the war, he wanted to be an airline pilot. Do you think he had any chance of doing that? No. Today, he would have he would have been welcomed in the airline industry. Um, so, what's happened is is that it goes back to critical theory. In order for critical theory to work, you got to have this conflict. You can't have peace or anything. Okay. So, in order to to make it work, this is my theory. What has happened is that people have uh, uh, gotten folks to demand perfection from the society. And if you might, if you demand perfection from anything mm -hmm. in this world, you're going to be disappointed. So, um, uh, so it's worse in the sense that people are very much, they make a, a whole lot of noise about not a whole lot. Okay. Uh, look, I know what racism is. I, I'm old enough to remember how it used to be. And uh, and uh, there's no reason that, look, 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 okay. Does racism exist in America? Yes. <clears throat> does uh, does uh, classism exist in England? Yes. Does the caste system exist in, uh, in, uh, in India? Yes. Does tribalism exist in Africa? Well, yes. And it's because of all these things, again, the subdominant group doesn't make out as well as the dominant group. However, in this country, let's say if I was, let's, let's say I wanted to, I had a golden life and, uh, and, I, and I pursue it. Uh, if I was white, I, let's say I can get to 100%. Uh, if I'm African-American because of some vestiges of racism, stuff like that, I might make it to about 97%, 95%. So, <clears throat> yes, there's still racism. But then on the other end, I mean, okay, um, uh, it does. It's not. It's not totally preventing me from achieving great things. Uh, and so, uh, and it's never going to be perfect anyway. I mean, even among white folks, you got issues. You know, um, one of the things that I've noticed in the news about Ukraine of late is a whole lot of African Americans who just can't get their heads around this. They can't understand white folks oppressing other white folks. Because they think it just has to do with color, you know what I mean? Huh. It, 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 it huh. doesn't make any, it doesn't fit their narrative, you know? But the reason that what's happening over in Ukraine and the reason why we had racism in America, reason why you have tribalism in Africa and all the rest of that is because human beings are sinful. They're sinful. We're fallen. We, uh, we need salvation. That's why Christ came, you know? So, um, uh, so that those are the things, um, uh, Yes, it, it's a lot better than it used to be. No, it's not perfect. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, look, who put Barack Obama over the top? It wasn't black folks. It was those white folks in the Iowa caucuses that put him on the map. <laughs> <laughs> he won the Iowa caucuses. Everybody said, "Woo, look at this, you know. Yeah. Uh, why was that? Because he, he, he appealed to people. I mean... People liked Obama a lot more than they liked his policies, but they did like him. You yeah, know? yeah. People liked Trump's policies more than they liked Trump. Yeah. 
So if only we yeah. if if only we could have had an Obama with Trump's policies, I, that would have been incredible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! Wow, I've got to I got to process that one. Um, you mentioned yeah. you know that there are vestiges of systemic racism, and I've talked to people who say, well, no, it's not just vestiges. Maybe. This is like a dominant thick thread in society. Um, I would love. Well, can you can you unpack what, what do you mean by systemic okay. racism? Like, say, if I was a judge in the court yeah. of law and you said systemic racism is, is is an issue, I would say, okay, prove like where where how do you identify it? What is it? Uh, how do we address it? Um, well, let me give you an example of systemic racism. Okay. This is actual example. Okay, the FHA. Okay, we all know about the FHA, Federal Housing Authority. Okay, they got into the home. You know, they got into to. Uh, Guaranteeing the home loans and stuff to encourage home ownership in America, right? Okay, so far so good. But among their rules was, we will not uh, back loans, home loans, in communities that are unstable. Mm -hmm. Now, on on the face of it, that's totally understandable. Why do you want to, you know? back alone in a community where the house could be burned down at any time or whatever, you know what I'm saying, where they could be, you know, where there's high crime and all that. Okay, so they will, they they did not back loans in communities that were, that were unstable. Okay, so far so good. Here's where the racism comes in. How do they define an unstable neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Hmm. They define that an unstable neighborhood is one where one non-white family lives. The presence of one non-white family in that neighborhood would judge it as unstable, and therefore they will not make home loans in that, that, uh, they will not back any loans. So what happens is that when African Americans would want to go and buy a home, they would have to buy. This happened. I was. I grew up in the Chicago area, in Gary, Indiana, to be exact. And so people would, in neighborhoods that were changing, you know, because when African Americans were leaving the, the ghetto and going out and doing these things, they would have to buy these homes on contract. And the way these contracts were set up was that you, as long as you were paying every month for the for the. But you, you were okay, but the house was totally, you were totally responsible for all the repairs and everything else like that. Mm-hmm. If you missed one, if you were late for one payment, no matter how far along you were, if you're late for one payment for any reason, you lost everything. Wow. And so what what happened is that a lot of African Americans, you know, there were some things, you know, somebody has an accident or something and forgets, you know, no matter what it was, they lose everything. Mm-hmm. So hmm. that put a great and, and also, these contracts have much higher interest rates than uh, F- F- FHA loans. So what was happening was that the wealth of African Americans was being drained at a faster pace. Hmm. That's an example of systemic racism. It's okay. not. It is. It is racism that's built into the to the warp and woof of the system. The uh, with that, one does not need to be prejudiced mm-hmm. to participate in a. Uh, in, in racism, I mean, look, I have this iPhone here. This makes me a participant. It might make me a participant in slavery over in uh, in China. Hmm. 
Okay, you know, these sweatshops and things like that. So, so there is that. Now, let me say this, that while systemic racism still exists, uh, it can only account for, say, a, a, a small a small percentage of the um, hindrances that I have in society, okay? Uh, now, what has happened in recent days, oh, now when I say recent days, I say it's in the last 30, 40 years, is that in any, in any society, in, in any group of people, there are two groups of people within that group of people. You have what I call the achievers, and you have the non-achievers. Now, what's the difference? It's not a matter of character now, not a matter of character at all. Mm-hmm. You know, so one group is not morally superior to the other. But achievers are those who live by value system, they live by a value system that if you follow it, generally speaking, you will succeed in that society. Mm-hmm. Succeeding meaning whatever that society defines as success. So in this case, we're talking about a nice home, two cars in the garage, a picket fence, and a Weber grill. Okay. <laughs> okay. So if you if if you live by the achiever value system, generally you will succeed. Yes, there are uh, exceptions to that. You know, if I invested all my money in Enron or something like that, you know, that's different. <laughs> the non-achievers, the non-achievers live by a value system. Uh, that if you follow it, will lead, will, will, will not allow you to success, succeed in society, will lead to non-success in society. You'll end up in poverty. You'll end up on welfare. You'll end up in, mm-hmm. okay. Now, <clears throat> what has happened is that the difference is, uh, see, among African-Americans, okay, uh, African-Americans are about, Let's say, uh, let me be conservative about this. Eighty-five to ninety percent achievers, and fifteen to twenty, and ten to fifteen percent non-achievers. So, um, uh, if you look at who lives in the ghetto, who lives in the hood, it's 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 only about ten percent of us. Hmm. Um, so, most African Americans uh, are generally successful. And I'm not saying that they're 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 overly wealthy, mm-hmm. but they they generally succeed. But what's happened is that over the last few years, it's the non-achievers who have become, the the small minority of non-achievers have become the dominant influence in the African-American context. And so everybody thinks that all African-Americans are non-achievers. That's ridiculous. Hmm. So so it's them. They're the ones who are crying out loud. And and they are saying that their non-success is due to racism when, in fact, their non-success is due to the bad value system that they are following. Okay, and uh, and so, I mean, you know, Black Lives Matter, all that. I mean, you know, they, 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 and again, which is interesting, and this is nothing new. Any any system of slavery, uh, for it to succeed, you need overseers of the same group you're enslaving. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So uh, the the overseers, the more they keep the slaves in line, the better they're off. The better off they are. Hmm. And so this is the oldest trick in the book. I mean, you know, you have groups out here who are running around screaming and yelling about all this poverty, which is true. It's, it's, it's there. Yeah. But they're screaming and yelling about all this. They're accumulating tremendous wealth for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and then they they skip off and buy houses and all the rest of that, and and the people who are suffering could get left with nothing, mm. and um, so uh, so the it's so it's the it's the uh, if you talk to most African Americans, you know they would you know they if you got them to admit, they would admit they say hey you know yeah yeah it's not perfect but we're we're doing okay yeah but the problem is. Because of gangster rap and of other things, corporate, corporate greed, the small minority of non-achievers have become, they, they have intimidated the achievers hmm. into thinking that they are a small minority. You know, we're yeah. 80, 85, 90%, but we think we're a small minority. And in order to, okay, case in point, case in point, when Barack Obama was running for president, I believe it was Al Sharpton said, that Obama is not really black. Yeah. Okay. Now, most people assume that he said that because Obama was biracial. And that's that's ridiculous. We've had biracial people in the black community from the, from the very beginning. Yeah. It's never been an issue for us. He said Barack Obama wasn't black because he didn't have a bunch of baby mamas around. He was he was married to one wife, had kids, you know what I'm saying, that kind of thing. He had he and and even even our president our present president said, Oh, uh, I'm surprised that here's a clean cut guy and all the rest of that, as if as if, you know, Barack yeah. Obama was the exception to the rule. And he was he was more black folks are more like that than than, uh, than this other thing. So so what's happening is that everybody buys into this narrative and there's a lot of people in today's world who are seeking redemption in the culture because they don't want to be considered uh, irredeemable uh, and so buy into that whole rhetoric uh, yeah, it's, uh, this, this that and the other it's, uh, it's racism, racism, systemic racism but yes it does exist but it's blown way out of proportion hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and so it's, it's you know it's, it, because it's a matter of the people who do this are, are the ones who accumulate the most power. It's the oldest oldest trick in the book. Is this the f- you, I've heard you use the phrase that you said something like there's a cold civil war in the African American community. A cold civil war. Yes. Yes. And so that's the achiever and what was the other opposite of achiever? The non-achiever. The non- yeah. Okay, achiever, non-achiever. Yeah. Uh, every now and then, every now and then that cold civil war heats up. Mm-hmm. One of the best examples I can tell you is what happened in Washington, D.C. back in the 90s. Uh, D.C. was, what, like 80, 80% black. And D.C. had a mayor named Marion Barry. Yeah. And uh, Ma- Marion Barry, you know, he comes from a non-achiever background. I mean, he grew up as, a, uh, you know, he his, his background was that, the sharecropping and a whole lot of other things. And the sharecropping system was devastating to... Uh, to, to kids growing up, especially if their families were fractured. Okay, so so you have him, he, he, he's a civil rights activist and everything. So he becomes a mayor of, of D.C. And um, he's going around to all the schools set, telling these kids not to take drugs. And he gets caught on camera sniffing cocaine or whatever it was. And so he he's, he he's, he's leaves office in disgrace. Okay. Then Sharon Pratt Kelly then becomes a mayor, African-American woman. 
So the D.C. is mostly African-American. Now, the African-Americans have, have the vote in D.C. Okay. Marion Barry, after going to prison, comes back and runs for city council. He wins that seat. And then he challenges uh, Sharon Pat Kelly uh, for the mayor. Well, it happens that in those years, most of the achievers in D.C. moved out to Prince George's County. So what you had in, in D.C. was a majority or a slight majority, maybe 55 percent, 60 percent of people who would be non-achievers. Mm-hmm. They saw Marion Barry as one of them. They did not see Sharon Pratt Kelly as one of them. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, when Barry was caught on camera uh, sniffing cocaine, you know, from my point of view, it was outrageous, mm-hmm. you know. But from the point of view of the non-achievers, they weren't so mad at that. They were mad at the fact that there, there was a woman who participated in the sting. And they called her that bee that set him up. Hmm. See? So, hmm. so, so what happened is that when the election came, Marion Barry trounced uh, Sharon Pratt Kelly. Hmm. Uh, because at that point, it was the non-achievers. They rose up and said, these achievers don't represent us. They are not like us. Marion Barry is one of us. And there it is. That it broke out into the open in the civil war, into a political, uh, a political hot war. Hmm. And but there's that there's that thing going on all the time. It's it's you don't hear about it a lot because it's kind of it's kind of kept hush hush. But it's it's right there. Hmm. And it was the same. As a matter of fact, it was it was a very similar phenomenon that happened among whites back in the early part of the 20th century. Because what happened was that there was a culture of dysfunctionality going on in the South. A lot of people call it redneck culture. Mm-hmm. And when white rednecks would move to the North, the northern the Northerners just said, oh, man, they, were, they were appalled. You know, they were, they, as a matter of fact, that's why for so many decades that if you had a Southern accent, you were assumed to be stupid. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. you know Lyndon Johnson could not have become president in his own right because he was a Southerner. Everybody thought Southerners were stupid. Uh, and of course, they don't think that that way now. But I'm just saying that those are, those are some other factors that go in that yeah. that uh, that contribute to this. So it's a little more complicated than people would say. And I say, uh, hey, let's uh, let's let's recognize what's going on and uh, and act accordingly. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. yeah, it's all, all of our problems. Yes, racism is real. Yes, and all that. And there are some people who say there's no such thing as systemic racism. That's yeah. ridiculous. Too. Okay. Yeah, all, all sin is deliberate and systemic. You know what I'm saying? All sin okay. has that. But uh, but if we would uh, if we would recognize the fact that these the all these are symptoms of fallen humanity. We we it goes all the way back to the garden, mm-hmm. and it's we. As Christians, we have the the most thorough, radical understanding of all of this, and we're not saying anything. We're not doing the kind of theology that puts that message out there. And so, people think they they, they think that Christianity is trivial. Well, the way we act, we act in a trivial way. Anyway, so, yeah. so what, let, let's yeah, let's. Let's tr- let's go in that direction to the church because okay. I mean, so far we're kind of painting a broad brush picture on race and society. And I think that's super important as Christians living in this society to have that understanding. But you made a comment early on about getting 
overly wrapped up in the kind of ideological warfare. And that's something obviously we don't want to do. So, so what is the Christian response to the racial tensions that are existing in society? Like what, what does it look like for the church to move forward in, in this, in this conversation? And, and you, you could, if you want, you can say, you know, the more white dominated church should kind of think, <laughs> consider this, 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 and maybe the more black dominated church or, or whatever. First of all, there is a black church in this country, but black people never intended to have a black church. Mm. It wasn't our idea. It did not originate with us. It was not something we wanted to do. Okay. It came about because the church in America was caught in the cultural captivity and therefore participated in the cultural sin of racism. Okay. I mean, if I can put it that way, I can show you the whole, I, the charts and all the history and all that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. So now we got a black church and a white church. Uh, the, the thing that we need to do is, is to, first of all, racism and the vestiges of, the, of racism should not exist within the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, will it exist? Of course it will, because we're still sinners and we're, we're a mess. The thing is, we got to recognize we are a mess. But, <clears throat> but the church should live a life of what I would call protest hmm. against the sin and the corruption that we that they were surrounded by. I mean, that's, that's right, right, right out of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so we should not participate in that kind of stuff. It may be like that out there in the world, but it should not be like that in the body of Christ. And if we have a problem with that, uh, I can tell you right now, the, the real problem with racism within the body of Christ goes back to the whole idea that black folks are subhuman some kind of a way. And if black folks are subhuman, then of course you have to have segregation, you know what I'm saying? But black folks aren't subhuman. Um, so the church should then, should should be on the leading edge of protest against it in the way we live. That's the first thing. We can't do much a whole, a whole lot about society out there. But yeah. we can do yeah. it. Maybe that, but it must not be that that way among can, us. Can you really quick give us maybe a, some concrete examples of what that looks like in a local church context? Because I've got a lot of friends that are in kind of like um, multi-ethnic, or they're, you know, they're they're trying to lead a multi-ethnic community. Is is that the answer? Is it multi-ethnic leadership in churches? Is it recognizing churches that reflect, for lack of better terms, a white? culture that sometimes they're yeah. even unaware of or what yeah what does it look like on the ground in a church to model this yeah well uh you know all that you mentioned is part of it but yeah the problem the problem that white folks in this country have okay when i say white folks it's not because they're white it's because they're dominant okay you you understand what i'm saying yeah yeah okay so yeah. okay yeah. if we're in kenya i talk about the kukuyus you know they're the dominant <laughs> tribe you know yeah. you know what i'm saying yeah. so okay yeah. The problem that any dominant culture uh, has, one of the main problems is that it doesn't realize that it has a culture. Mm. They say, oh, all this is normal, but you don't, you know, you know, we clap on one and three. That's normal. But somebody in comes, comes and starts clapping on two and four. Oh, that's culture. You got to keep that out. <laughs> that's worldly, you know, right? <laughs> the Tom Skinner, Tom Skinner has the best take on that about how white people sing the hymns and how black people sing the hymns and the white people think, Oh, you're singing it differently. <laughs> or you're, no, you're not doing right. it right. You know? Right, right, right. Yeah. Exactly. So the dominant culture has a tendency to, to, to not realize that it has a culture. Okay. That's the first thing. The second thing is <clears throat> that 
All of us, all of us who follow Jesus, a black, white, grizzly, or gray, whatever, all of us are a part of a distinct cultural minority. We cannot think of ourselves as the, as the, as the establishment. We are, uh, we are a minority together, okay? And uh, if we begin to model that, is if we begin to see ourselves in that way, uh, you, you know, here's the thing. Let, let's talk about uh, conservatives, for example. I mean, you know, conservatives, I understand, you know, that uh, you, we got traditional values and non-traditional values and all the rest of that. Conservatives have a, have a way of wanting to preserve the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to preserve the status quo. I'm not satisfied with it. Mm. I want to. I want to. I want to overthrow the status quo. Hang on. Hang on. You're fine. I got this all coming. Okay. I want to overthrow the status quo because I'm not just to overthrow it now. If 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 I'm just going to overthrow it and that's it, then that that's wrong too. I want the kingdom of God. You know what I'm saying? I want to bring. I want to see the kingdom of God come. So our kingdom is Christ. Okay, and He shall reign forever and ever. Right. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the day. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's what I'm going for. I'm not trying to preserve the status quo. Uh, I will use the status quo, uh, whatever advantages I have, uh, for the sake of the kingdom. So uh, there are times when I played the race card, but I played it for the sake of the kingdom, not not just for my own my own. Uh, does that make sense? What, what do you mean, play uh, the race card? Like tease that out a little bit. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, there are times when uh, I could I can indict somebody for racism. I can indict somebody for racism, but really I'm indicting them for being unfaithful to God. You know what I'm saying? But I use the racial racial okay. issue to get to get at that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's yeah. not race for race because God has given me my race as a gift. It's it's something to be used for the glory of God. I mean, whether whether positively or negatively. I mean, you know, I, 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 I oftentimes, uh, you know, if I go to Africa, you know, there's a kind of a head start I have with everybody because, you know, hey, I'm African-American, you know, that's, that's, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then on the other hand, if I try to exploit Africans based on that, that's a whole other thing altogether. So whatever God gives us, there are people in the dominant culture. Uh, th- there's nothing wrong with being in the dominant culture. It's what you do with it. Uh, so you use your status in the dominant culture or as a member of the dominant culture for the sake of the kingdom. Um, so, uh, mm-hmm. that, that's, you know, God gives us various things and situations. And so we are to use yeah. these things for the kingdom of God. If we learn how to do that, then we'll be miles ahead of everybody else. And, uh, now, mm-hmm. uh, uh, these multi-ethnic churches and everything. Yeah, that's a nice idea, but in too many cases, in most cases that I know of, multi-ethnic churches, white folks come as they are, but everybody else has yeah. got to assimilate into the, yeah. into the dominant culture. It's not it's not integration; it's assimilation, right? It's it's still it's exactly right. right. Yeah, that's right. To me, that's 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 not it's not worth the effort. I mean, what the heck? Why why should I, you know, why why sh- why should I run? Why should I go to a church where I got to run with the governor? But I can go to a black church and just be free. I mean, what's that all about? Now, there are times when I will give up my freedom for the sake of something higher. You know what I'm saying? Yes. But uh, but I don't I don't think it's uh, 
I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an imbalance. It doesn't quite work right. But we have, if we think as, as a minority together, uh, if we begin to do that, then I think uh, we might be able to see some things uh, clear. You know, I, I did a blog and I said uh, recently, and I said about one of the things we do when we try to attack these things with ideology and whatnot, it's like playing whack-a-mole. You know, I knock this one down, another one comes up, knock it down, and and I can play whack-a-mole forever and never solve the problem. The way you solve the whack-a-mole problem is you unplug the the the, 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 the machine and stop those things from coming up in the first place. So, <laughs> yeah. is 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 the is the the best way to not to 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 create a church that's truly integrating different cultures, ethnicities, races is, um, rather than assimilating is the best way to do that. Having multi-ethnic leadership, like, can that even happen unless you have multi-ethnic leadership? Is that, or is that, is that too simplified to say that? Or is that actually the, the starting, the necessary starting point to create a genuinely multi-ethnic church? It helps. It helps. But you, but, but see, ethnicity is not enough to go by. You also got to go by the mentality of the people leading it. Hmm. Um, What's the use of having an African American in leadership if he thinks white? Does that make sense? It I mean, does. I, I'm going to have you unpack that in a second, but yeah, keep going. Um. Yeah, if he if, if the way he thinks is no different from the white folks who are in the dominant group, yeah. you know what I'm saying, which yeah. is supposed to be causing the problem in the first place, then what does dark complexion okay. contribute to that? If that's all it is, that's nothing. Yeah, it's it's not yeah. a matter of uh, uh, you know your, your your skin color or anything. It's the way you think. And uh, if if I think, like I said, if I think as an as a minority, mm-hmm. if I think of myself as the majority or the dominant group, mm-hmm. then I'm no different from anybody else. You know, um, see that's that's the thing. Okay, I I I know of a I know of a church. Uh, in the last few years, that really wanted to bring, you know, they were trying to be multi-ethnic and all that, and they wanted to bring some black leadership into the church. Okay, God bless them. But when they went to get some black leadership, they didn't consult with the black people in the congregation in terms of what kind of leader they huh. that chose someone after the order of how they thought. Does that make so this person was chosen on the basis of dominant cultural standards, you know, uh, rather than you know, and so it, it was it it could cause a problem in the church. Mm-hmm. See, you never mm-hmm. consulted us, you know, because again, what was happening? The dominant culture was acting out of their dominance, and they yeah. weren't they weren't taken yeah. consider. Look, 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 look. Um, Book of Acts, chapter six. They were taking care of widows. The, the Hebrew widows were, were doing okay. The Greek widows were being left out in the daily distribution of food. So the apostles then, they said, look, we don't have the, we don't have the know, know-how to do this, so why don't we choose some you know, helpers, some deacons, to take care of this whole thing. And it's interesting that they chose all Greek deacons, because hmm. hmm. the Greeks who understood where the, where the problem was. Uh, but... Uh, but he said, you choose from among you, you know, you you folks who are being, you know, uh, shortchanged, you choose. 
and they chose seven, and they straightened it out. Hmm. Uh, but if the apostles had said, well, you know, uh, uh, saying that you're being left out of the distribution of food, that's divisive. If they had said something like that or whatever, mm-hmm. then it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, have, it would not have gone very well. Yeah. And the interesting yeah. thing is, once the Greek deacons got the bugs out, you never hear from the Hebrew widows saying that we're shortchanged. They never complained about reverse discrimination because mm. the spirit mm. of God was there. So, yeah. uh, so yeah. it's it, 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 it takes a lot. It takes a lot for us to re- become radically biblical. Uh, if if we pursue the kingdom of God according to Scripture, then a lot of this stuff will will not. Um, a lot of the stuff will kind of fall away. I mean, you know, it won't be perfect. Like I said, I mean, even the early church had Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira, you know what I'm saying? Even yeah. they had issues, yeah. <laughs> and we're going to still have issues because we're sinners and we're fallen, but we're being saved by grace. And I think uh, the church should be on the leading edge of that as opposed to letting the society do it. Yeah. We're trying to do it through yeah. legislation. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, yeah. do I favor, uh, you know, am, you know am, am I in favor of uh, legislation? That's good. Yes, 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 of course. I like the fact that we had the Civil Rights uh, Bill of 1960, uh, 1964. But now the way they're applying it, though, they're applying it to categories of people that are not biblically legitimate, if you know what I'm saying. Before, and we're coming close to an hour here, but um, you, you, so to, to revisit, you know, um, the multi-ethnic church that has, you know, a black person in leadership and you said he thinks white. I would love to get your take on the, the, the words or concepts whiteness um, white supremacy, white privilege. Um, and I've, I've heard you, I've, I've heard you talk about this and I, I think your perspective is really helpful. Cause I know there's, there's people when, when, when people use these phrases, some white people say, well, wait a minute, isn't that just reverse racism or you're broad brushing a whole group of people or, I don't know. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding how these phrases are used. And even me, I'm, I'm, I'm on a journey trying to figure out when people use this phrase, what exactly do they mean? So help us understand that idea when people talk about whiteness, white supremacy, white privilege. or In the society, the dominant group always has more privilege than the subdominant group, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. Because the system works better for the dominant group than it does for the subdominant group. So in a society that's defined by race, is there something as white privilege? Yes, there is white privilege. However, it doesn't mean that you can explain everything by by, by that. Um, mm-hmm. In some cases, in some cases, like okay, for example, I I speak the language of the dominant group in America. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have I have dominant privilege. I have dominant language privilege. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, there are th- I, in order to get a job, I don't have to learn a whole other language. If I want to be an airline pilot and fly internationally, I don't have to know, learn another language because the international trade language is English. You know what I'm saying? So I have a privilege in that sense. I don't have to learn another language. So yes, there is. Um, but. The way we handle that is not so much. First of all, we, you say, okay, how do I use my, my privilege? Do I use it for the kingdom of God? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
to empower people who may not be uh, who not, who may not have the same privileges that I do, or and you know or or how do I? Uh, I mean, I, look, I was born with this. I mean, I can't you know I can't take it back. Um, but the thing is, within the body of Christ, then this is, I lay this at the at the Master's feet and, and let Him do what what He wants. Um, uh, so yeah, there is such a thing as white privilege. It's historic, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know. Um, you know, if 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 I was white and wanted to get a car loan, I'd get a cheaper rate than I would if I was black. Okay, uh, that may not be true today, but that, that certainly has been true in the mm-hmm. in the past. So, and the people don't realize, you know, the fact that they do have privilege. Yeah. Uh, but that, but. The problem I have is when people say that because you have privilege, that in and of itself is is a sin. No, it's uh, not. Okay, uh, that's the problem. Here's my so, here's my you, you, yeah. my guilt. My question, yeah. and it's I don't want to call it a pushback because I don't I don't it it is more of a question. Like when I hear white privilege, it's like well, does that? It sounds like every single white person has privilege over a non-white person in every single circumstance. I'm like, well, if that's what people mean, that can't be, that can't be true. I mean, if I was applying for a job at a, in the humanities department at a secular university, my white straight maleness is going to be three strikes against me in some of those environments. Or if I walk through South central late at night, LA, um, my whiteness is not going to give me any privilege. Um, It depends on the context. Okay, it so I'm right to say, it. wait a minute, it just seems a little more, com- it's not like my whiteness brings me privilege in every single environment, in my do- even in my dominant society. Okay. It does not. It depends on your context. Okay. Uh, if you grew up in Appalachia, yeah. okay, well, who's this guy? He, he wrote this book, Hillbillyology. Yeah, um, yeah. J.D. Vance, I think. J.D. Yeah. Right. I read his book. Yeah. You know, I can relate to JD Vance. I mean, <laughs> I knew I knew I knew guys like that when I grew up in the hood. You know, they just happened to be black, but they came from the same fractured family and all the rest of that kind of stuff. You know, so um, so yeah, you know, just because you're white doesn't mean that you have white privilege. Okay, it's a whole okay. lot of other things involved. It depends on your value system, your culture, your, you know, what I'm saying. It's a whole lot of things, and so uh, yeah, in some contexts, uh, being white is a disadvantage. You know. As a matter of fact, in today's ideology, the irredeemable people fall into four categories, okay? White, males, heterosexuals, and Christians. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. If you, or some combination of those. Well, if that's – you and I are both in trouble, you know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's the thing. Again, that goes back to that whole – that whole critical theory, Marxian kind yeah. of thing, the struggle. You got to create the struggle. You got to have you got to have the, the the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat, or the thesis versus the antithesis. You gotta mm-hmm. you gotta have that in order for in order for the thing to work. So yeah. uh, you get caught up in all that. So yeah, I mean, you know, um, in the home, in the home, in everybody's home, there's privilege. The parents have privileges over the kids. Uh, you know, uh, that's just that's just that's life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I can't I can't I can't change my color or my skin or anything else like that. Yeah. But what I can change is yeah. what I do with it, how I use it. Yeah. That's the thing. Or even like I mean, yeah. people that I'm we're almost not allowed to talk about even physical presentation. I mean, uh, 
a six foot four athletic, well dressed, good looking black man might have that might bring more privilege than a maybe a short, bald, squatty, you know, white well, dude with no personalities, kind of, you know, what I, and I, that's, I'm not saying, I'm just, you can get in trouble really quick when you talk like this, but I mean, there's, there's so many um, factors that, that go in. And I guess that's where I just, I, I don't, I, I don't mind broad brush concepts as long as you recognize the, the, the social and integrative complexity yep. of, of so many factors yep. that play into this. And if that's what we mean, then I think white privilege, absolutely, generally speaking, my whiteness will bring me more privilege in most, many, most situations in a white dominated culture. And I'm, I'm, I think that's absolutely correct. But your whiteness will bring you privilege, all other things being equal, all things being equal. Yeah, yeah. All of them being equal. But, when, but that life isn't like that. And that's the problem with critical theory, is that it oversimplifies everything. You, it oversimplifies everything and puts everybody. It's either this or that, one extreme or the other. Like in in life, you got you got the oppressors, right? And then you got the privileged. Mm-hmm. And over here, you got the the, uh, the 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 disadvantaged. And then over here, you got the uh, the oppressed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now that's the way it is. So there are people who are advantaged who are not oppressors, and there are people who are disadvantaged who are not oppressed. They're just disadvantaged. Like, for example, if you're left-handed, you're disadvantaged. I don't care what color you are. You know, you try to use a pair of scissors. You know what I'm saying? So, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. But then you got okay. So what critical theory does? It comes along and it forces everybody either to be a, a, the oppressor or the oppressed. Hmm. It forces everybody into that. In, in the in that dualistic uh, mm-hmm. way of looking at it, and it makes us that you, it's it's bound to collapse because let's say for example that that white folks that's it you know whites whites versus non-whites okay critical race theory whites versus non-whites okay so let's topple the white folks let's just, just knock them off let's overthrow them okay now what within that group that overthrew the white folks, somebody's going to rise to the top as the dominant influence. So now you got to give it to them. <laughs> Somebody else is going to rise, and you got to give it to them. I mean, you take intersectionality. The more, um, the more um, uh, uh, points of oppression or disadvantage you can claim, the more powerful you are, the more legitimate you are. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. If I'm black, I can stand up and sit you down and say, no, check your white privilege, okay? And I'm st- and then some black woman says, oh, no, no, you check your, your male privilege. Sit me down. And then a, then a, a gay black woman said, no, you check your heterosexual privilege. And you keep on going. Eventually, who's, you know, who, you take somebody who is in a coma, they have less privilege, and so therefore they should they should be Listen yeah. to it. Of course, ultimately, the ultimate power you have in that scheme is when you're dead, because you have all the business, man. <laughs> I've not, I've not heard that that part of intersectionality. You know, it's fun. I mean, the inner. I've learned a lot from aspects of intersectionality that that help me fill in blind spots, and I'm like, man, yeah, there, there's. Well, there, there's some helpful things here, but I think it. I think there's some problems in it. There was a 
I mean, uh, I don't want to call it funny, but it, there was an interesting case in in L.A. where a trans woman, meaning biological male, who hadn't had any surgeries, went into a, a, a was it a woman's salon and was kind of sprawling out with his junk hanging out. And a woman with her daughter, a black woman with her daughter, came and berated the people saying, there's a man in there. You got to get this. You know, and like, no, no. He identifies as a woman. I don't care what he had. And, and they were just caught like, wait, does a black woman went out here or the white trans woman, biological male? And it's like a intersectional train wreck, you know, because it's like, well, exactly. <laughs> that's what we run into. That's what we run into. You're going to the whole intersectional thing is unstable. It's going to it's going to fall apart. Hmm. Or, you know, you take a. Uh, Female athletics, okay? Oh, man. <laughs> You're going to go here, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, uh, see, that's see that's the kind of foolishness that people get into when they do not have biblical wisdom. Hmm. We got to go We got to go to the scripture, and we got to speak with, with, with biblical wisdom. Because uh, everybody knows there's something wrong here. Everybody knows there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. So I don't blame people for trying to do something to, about to make it right. The problem is, the way they, they go about doing it, uh, they end up just shading one problem to it for another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Carl, I've, I've taken you over the time here. Thank you so much for being on my pod. I, 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 I feel like we're just getting warmed up. I can keep going. And uh, I, I just uh, I, I just love just your way of thinking where you, you, you said early on that you get accused of being conservative, liberal. And it's like, I don't even work within those categories. And I, I can't tell you, my, I, I'm sure my audience is laughing because you're like, Preston, that's basically your existence <laughs> like you know <laughs> um so i i very much resonate with that and i love and i think jesus in his own way had similar critiques so um that's i guess that's a good spot to be so he did. Yeah. he did have similar critiques matthew 11 mm. to what can i compare this generation like a bunch of kids playing around we 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 played the flute. You didn't dance. We sang a funeral dirge. You didn't cry. Yeah. You know. <laughs> you know. John the Baptist come along, came along, not eating and drinking. They said he was he was he was mad. He was demons. I come along eating and drinking. You say I'm a drunkard. You know, yeah. an addict. You know, so you know you can't you, you can't win. You didn't fit into the tribalistic box we wanted you to fit into. Well, thank you, Carl. Many blessings on your life and ministry, and uh, we should do this again sometime. Hey, man, let's do it. Let's right. do it. Hey, by the way, where are you located? Bo- I'm in Boise, Idaho. Boise, Boise, Idaho. Yeah. If you could think of some kind of a speaking engagement for me there, I'd love to come because I'm trying to fill in all 50 states. I've been to 48 states. Oh. I haven't been to Idaho, North Dakota. I haven't been to South Dakota, so I'm, I'm working on that. So I'd well, like we to, can I'd uh, check that yeah, I, I host a conference. I, I, we host a conference here every year. We just have our first one coming up here in a couple of days, the Algin Raw Conference. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that, that that's that uh, not outside the realm of possibilities, Carl. That <laughs> yeah. works for you, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> All right, God bless. Hey, okay, God bless, brother.